Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 102 Ravenloft. This week's topic is one that really doesn't have a middle ground. You either love playing in it, or you curse the day you found out about it and don't want the books anywhere near you. Ravenloft will do that to you, believe me. I was in that second group at one time, but whether it's age or experience playing, I feel like I could run a group through the setting and we'd all have a hell of a good time. Before we can talk about Ravenloft, we have to talk about its inspiration. Tracy and Laura Hickman are the creators of the setting, and in 1978, they wrote two adventures that would eventually become standalone modules, Pharaoh and Ravenloft. Now, for those who've played the setting before, Strahd von Zarovich is, well, notorious, and he was a part of that Ravenloft module. In a 2020 interview with Ari David for CBR, Tracy Hickman discussed the inspiration for Strahd. Quote, it came from a disappointing D&D game. Looking back at the first edition, you realize it wasn't much of a storytelling game. It didn't make sense to me why a vampire would just be hanging out in a dungeon with a bunch of oozes, zombies, and other random creatures, end quote. David noted that, quote, so he and his wife set out to create a vampire villain with fleshed out motivations and history, end quote. Let's pause the history of the setting here for a moment and discuss first edition, shall we? I know I covered it in an episode of its own quite a while back, but when I was researching it, what I was hearing from the OG gamers was how much they loved it and missed playing it. That being said, I'm pretty sure those were comments made from the perspective of time and how we tend to alter how we feel about them. And I say that because of the number of interviews I've read over the past year, just like the one I just quoted. And from having played first edition, I can tell you from experience that it's the truth. First edition D&D was pretty much always a dungeon crawl, and you'd have your vampire or dragon or whatever just sort of hanging out in the dungeon, waiting for the party to come along and try to kill it for its treasure. Didn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense to me either, but then again, I was a kid, so what the hell did I know? By the way, if you've never played or seen First Edition, grab yourself a PDF copy, check it out, and get back to me. Chances are you are going to agree with my assessment. All right, back to the history lesson. The Hickmans determined at some point that the vampire archetype was exceptionally overused. On top of that, they considered it to be trite and mundane. So when they were working on Ravenloft, they vowed to create a vampire archetype worth the title of vampire. They wanted one who was genuinely scary and one that wouldn't just be there for players to slaughter wholesale. So with an adventure and a scary big bad evil guy created, the Hickmans decided it was playtest time. They playtested the module every Halloween for five years using their own game system and calling the adventure Vampire. Vampire became Ravenloft because, as the Hickmans have noted frequently over the years, their friends kept asking them about their Ravenloft game. The Hickman's friends weren't the only ones who took notice. TSR eventually found out about Ravenloft, and they were hired to adapt their game into an AD&D module, which was number 16, Ravenloft, and it was released in 1983. That module won the 1984 Strategist's Club Award for Outstanding Play Aid, and it got a sequel, 1986's Ravenloft 2: The House on Griffin Hill. 
On top of that, 1986 also saw an AD&D adventure gamebook novel based on Ravenloft, Master of Ravenloft. So the setting was off to the races, as it were. Ravenloft really started to pick up steam in the second edition of AD&D. It was released as a box set, full campaign setup in 1990. And for those box set geeks in the crowd, it's lovingly referred to as the black box. And you can figure out why. If you can't, that's what Google's for, kids. The Black Box won the Origins Award in 1991 for Best Graphic Presentation of a Role-Playing Game, Adventure, or Supplement of 1990. Ravenloft as a setting got itself not one, but two revisions over the years. The Ravenloft campaign setting, or the Red Box in 1994, then the Domains of Dread hardcover book in 1997. In between those two books, Ravenloft also found itself becoming a subsetting. Called Mask of the Red Death, it was set on Gothic Earth, which was inspired by Edgar Allan Poe when was an alternate Earth of the 1890s. It came out in 1994, and yes, it had fantasy creatures and magic, so it stuck to the AD&D theme. Somewhat. Realizing they had a bona fide hit on their hands, TSR kept their foot on the gas, releasing a series of novels set in the Ravenloft setting. Some of those novels included our friend Count Strahd, and some of those tended to be among the best sellers. It should also be noted that some of the authors of the line are names that are big in the horror and dark fantasy world. Elaine Bergstrom, P.N. Elrod, Christy Golden, and Laurel K. Hamilton, among a few. So let's talk third edition. As we've discussed in every setting show we've done, when Wizards of the Coast bought D&D from TSR, they pretty much decided that other than the Forgotten Realms, they weren't overly interested in producing materials for the other settings. Over time, as we'll see shortly, some of those feelings changed, but in 2000, they were strong. So strong, in fact, that Wizards decided to license the Ravenloft brand to White Wolf Publishing. Yeah, you heard me right. Wizards of the Coast willingly licensed one of its most popular settings from the second edition of the game to one of its top competitors in the tabletop role-playing game publishing game. And White Wolf wasted zero time jumping on the D20 third edition train. Using their Sword and Sorcery Studios imprint, they released the D20 Ravenloft campaign setting in 2001, then followed it with the 3.5 edition Ravenloft Player's Handbook in 2003. Now, some of you might have books with the Art House name on it instead of Sword and Sorcery. Still White Wolf, it's just a different imprint. If you read these books, you'll notice some differences from the Wizard D&D product, and that's due to the intellectual property clauses of the OGL. That meant that D&D-specific deities like Bane were replaced with deities of SNS's own creation, in this case, the Lawgiver. Other than the Wizards IP specifics, everything else about Ravenloft remained from its original versions. This deal continued on until August of 2005, when the license reverted back to Wizards. However, there was a clause in the deal that allowed White Wolf to continue selling its backstock until June of 2006. This led to an issue for White Wolf, as they'd already worked out another supplement called Van Richten's Guide to the Mists, and since they could no longer publish new material, they decided instead to release it for free in PDF form in September of 2005. And for those who just realized that the Van Richten's Guide thing sounded familiar, that's because it is. TSR had published a bunch of these in the 1990s. The Guide to the Mists was intended by White Wolf to be a new entry in that line. Would have been interesting to see how the line would have continued had they kept the license. 
When they got the license back, Wizards realized the line still had a lot of life left in it, so they took advantage and got to publishing. The first release was in October of 2006. They dropped Expedition to Castle Ravenloft, which was a hardcover version of the original adventure for first edition, updated for the 3.5 edition of the rules. And yes, I bought that bad boy the day it hit the shelves. Never got a chance to run it, but I own it. Gonna have to dig it out and show it on the YouTube channel at some point. Anyway, they jazzed up the release with maps taken from the original release and left unaltered. They also presented some new character generation options, with the idea being to make Expedition a standalone adventure, appropriate for any D&D campaign setting. What makes that cool is that not only could you do Ravenloft in the Forgotten Realms, if you chose to just run it, all you needed were the three core rulebooks. It should also be noted that this version of the Ravenloft setting was very different from what White Wolf had been publishing for the previous five years, and that's pretty much standard operating procedure in the industry, so no big shock there. It was also around this same time that the buzz around the industry was that Wizards was going to release yet another edition of D&D. And on top of that, there was a lot of chatter about the possibility of Ravenloft being an official setting for the new edition. Now, I've discussed in the other setting-specific shows that I've done that every time there's a new edition, the buzz starts about whether someone's favorite settings will make the cut, so one would wonder what's so different in this case. First, you have to take a look at the history of Ravenloft in its totality. There, there had always been some sort of setting material out there since it was first released in 1983. So the fact that it had been officially a part of the D&D world made it easy for gamers to speculate that it would be again. Another factor to take into consideration was that Expedition was basically a brand new setting for D&D, and it was released very late in the process, especially if the 4th edition chatter was to be believed. Shannon Applecline noted this in his book Designers and Dragons, adding that, quote, It was a fond look back at one of the most notable adventures from the AD&D days, just the sort of thing that Wizards had published in the waning days of 2E, end quote. One more factor to take into account here is that some of the rules in Expedition weren't exactly the same as 3.5. I mean, they worked with 3.5, but they were just different enough to keep the tongues wagging. And it turned out those wagging tongues were right. By the end of 2006, Wizards had announced 4th Edition would be coming, and that Expedition had been a part of the gradual introduction of the new edition, thus the explanation for the subtle rules adjustments. But the introduction of Ravenloft into 4th edition took a bit of a backseat. There were two new Ravenloft novels released in 2008, Black Crusade and The Sleep of Reason. Prior to that, Ari Marmel dropped a short story on the Wizards website for Halloween. Titled Before I Wake, it, along with the novels, cranked up the speculation that a 4th edition supplement was forthcoming. Wizards announced in their September 2008 Digital Insider that Ravenloft would be coming back, and the introduction would begin with the October online issue of Dragon Magazine. The Manual of the Plains from 2008 brought the retcon cosmology of Ravenloft back, and again, fans were waiting with bated breath for a full-on Ravenloft release. Now, that never happened. While it was announced to be coming at Gen Con 2010, for whatever reason, it never made its way into print. However, it did see a comeback as a board game, 2010's Castle Ravenloft board game. There were also official articles with the setting and some information, Fair Barovia from Dungeon Magazine in October of 2012, and History Check, Strahd and Van Richten in Dragon Magazine that same month. 
So while fans were bummed about not getting Ravenloft in the most recent edition of the game, the rumors and excitement levels cranked back up when Wizards announced 5th edition. That being said, after all the rumors that didn't pay off for 4th edition, there was a large number of the fan base that were hedging their bets just in case. The patience of the fan base paid off as Wizards tested the waters by publishing an adventure module in 2016 was set in Barovia, which is one of the main locations within Ravenloft. Titled Curse of Strahd, it was intended to be an adaptation of the original Ravenloft module, updated for 5th edition. Wizards of the Coast handled the design of the module in-house, using Christopher Perkins as the lead. They didn't stop there, though. They brought Tracy and Laura Hickman on board, and according to multiple sources, the three met frequently to discuss new ideas for Ravenloft. Curse of Strahd is the result of their many interactions, and it was very well received upon its release. They didn't stop there. A new edition of the Curse of Strahd module, called Curse of Strahd Revamped, was released on October 20th, 2020. In addition to being an updated version of an old favorite, Revamped was also the first release under Wizards' new focus on diversity and inclusion, specifically as it pertains to the Vistani, who were originally based on the stereotypes about the Romani people. Wizards made it a point to note that they'd revised the description of the Vistani in the new release. And I don't want to hear shit about the diversity thing. For those who don't like it, that's your right. For those of us who do, it was a welcome announcement. We can agree to disagree in a civil manner. The most recent announcement concerning Ravenloft was a new campaign source book released in February of 2021 called Von Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. It fleshes out the campaign world a bit more for 5e and introduces more Domains of Dread to the edition. And we'll get into those Domains of Dread in a few. So unlike some of the other settings we've covered on this show, Ravenloft has managed to continue to get materials produced for it pretty much since the beginning. What does the future hold? While I don't have a crystal ball, I do think it's pretty safe to say that based on the history we just covered, there will be something Ravenloft-related released for 1D&D, especially if you've seen the sales numbers for Curse of Strahd Revamped. Now, since this is a campaign setting and not a new set of rules, we don't need to pop the hood to see how she runs. Instead, we're going to spend the rest of our time today going over the setting. And if you're worried that that's going to run us short, <laughs> I can assure you there's a lot of meat on that bone. So kick back, settle in, and join me in the immersion into the setting that is Ravenloft. The first thing we need to know about Ravenloft is that since it began, it's been acknowledged that Ravenloft exists in what is known as a pocket dimension, which is one of those alternate space-time existences. That's what allows Ravenloft to essentially exist in any campaign world you want to use it in. I think it's also pretty obvious that Ravenloft is a gothic horror setting, which we've hit on with the various examples of the releases over its history. When it comes to running Ravenloft, DMs are strongly encouraged to set up their scenes to get the maximum amount of apprehension and fear as possible, so whatever it takes to ratchet that up should be employed. Of course, there needs to be a payoff to that, and it tends to come in the face-to-face -face meeting with whatever nameless evil is involved in the plot. It should also be noted that in the Ravenloft world, characters' actions have much more significance than they would in other places, since those who have what I would call shaky morals have a much greater chance of falling under the influence of the dark powers, which will gradually turn them into a figure of evil. 
So let's talk about those dark powers. They're a malevolent force who control the demiplate of dead. Now, we don't know what their nature is or how many there actually are, since those are things kept intentionally vague in the various releases. The stated reason for that is to allow the DM a wide berth in advancing their plot in the gothic tradition of storytelling. For those who aren't familiar with that style of story, the idea is for the heroes to be constantly outnumbered and outclassed by the evil forces, and playing out how that impacts the heroes over time. These dark powers tend to be the plot device for most Ravenloft adventures. More to the point, the Dark Lords tend to be involved in some way, shape, or form, and the dark powers tend to stand opposed to them. For the record, the Dark Lords are the de facto rulers of the Ravenloft Demiplane, and I say de facto because they're the ones who can be seen. It goes like this. The characters will find themselves tormented and tortured by the Dark Lords, but the Dark Lords themselves are being tormented and tortured by the Dark Powers. A vicious cycle, if you will. And most importantly to note, while the characters can and often do prevail over a Dark Lord, a Dark Lord victory over the Dark Powers is damn near impossible. And I know that some of you OG D&D players will point out that Vecna and Lord Soth managed to escape Ravenloft, but those are two exceptions to the rule, and they're also fairly exceptional situations. I mean, Vecna had to become a greater god to escape, and that's because once Vecna became a greater god, the dark powers weren't powerful enough to prevent it. Lord Soth managed to escape by basically ignoring his domain and his punishment, which caused the dark powers to lose interest in him, which allowed his agents on the world of Kryn to come and rescue him. Believe me, those aren't mistakes the Dark Powers will repeat. They are quick learners. More often than not, the Dark Powers like to work through subtle manipulations, and it's usually manipulations of fate. An example fans of Ravenloft will recognize is Strahd von Zarovich's multiple attempts to win back his love, Tatiana. While Strahd is the vampire lord of Barovia, he's doomed to never win her back. That being said, they're just cruel enough to make sure things work out in a way that he never loses hope. Again, if you're familiar with Strahd, you know that typically things fail due to his own options, at least in part. So it means he's pissed at himself to the point of self-loathing, self-abuse, which means he's not cursing the gods. And most of the other Dark Lords have stories that are quite similar. What makes the Dark Powers even scarier is that many of the Dark Lords don't directly acknowledge their existence. Strahd himself will only note a force he calls death, which he also notes mocks him always with the voices of long-gone family and friends. Vlad Drakov, who is the Dark Lord of Falkovnia, is cursed with his military expeditions always failing, and he's oblivious to anything that isn't mortal-related causing his issues. And again, there are numerous other Dark Lords who would tell the same types of tales. There's one more thing that makes the Dark Powers scarier than hell, and that's the fact that despite their torturous nature, they're also considered to be the dispensers of justice. Multiple stories from those who've escaped Ravenloft had noted that they were judged as being worthy of reward and released from Ravenloft, and those who've heard those tales can only attribute them to the Dark Powers themselves. Next up, let's look at the Domains of Dread, since there is much a part of the story more often than not than the antagonists. There are quite a few Domains of Dread, and they form the landscape of Ravenloft. One notable thing about the Domains are the fact that they're surrounded by strange mists, and those mists have the ability to ensnare both people and places in the Prime Material Plane and pull them into a Domain. 
I've noted that there are Dark Lords in charge of the domains, but I didn't note that all of the domains have a Dark Lord in charge of them. And each Dark Lord has been imprisoned in that domain by the Dark Powers. Yeah, it's a, a twisted web we weave here. We learned early on in the Ravenloft setting that it is believed by those who acknowledge the Dark Powers that the creation of the Domains of Dread was actually their work. And from a historical standpoint, while we learned about Barovia and Mordant when Ravenloft was first created, we didn't get knowledge of other domains and or locations until 1990's release Ravenloft Realm of Terror. According to that book, Ravenloft is 40,000 square miles across 26 different domains. That release also provides an overview of all of the core domains, plus eight that are called islands. And you'll need to read the book to find out why that's the case. Yeah, like I always said, if I told you everything, why would you need to buy the book? 1994's Ravenloft campaign setting made some changes. They removed domains that were destroyed in what is known as the Grand Conjuncture series of adventures and added new ones to replace them. As has been noted by multiple sources, the entire purpose of the Grand Conjuncture series was to purge some of the domains that just didn't, well, fit. Others were either purged or heavily redone because their leaders were too similar to some of the others that had been previously established. The changes brought the number of recognized core domains to 20, with nine islands also a part of the picture. Fast forwarding to 5th edition, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft details 39 domains, and again we see an overhaul of a great many of those, while those that remain basically unchanged got advances in other ways that didn't alter their basic structure. Rob Wyland had this to report in a Forbes article at the time, quote, Many of the domains now have new Dark Lords that reflect their original character, but have details changed to better fit the type of horror the domain is supposed to represent, end quote. Several of the domains have become pretty popular over the years, so let's take a look at them. I've mentioned Barovia more than once already during today's show, and it has the distinction of being the first domain introduced. It's also the home of Strahd von Zarovich, which means if you're playing a game with Strahd in it, you're definitely in Barovia. For the record, the Hickmans have noted over the years that Barovia and Strahd, if we're telling the whole truth, was inspired by Bram Stoker's Dracula. Carnival is a rather interesting domain. It sort of just, well, it wanders through the mists. It's populated by what are called wild performers, you're going to have to trust me on that one, as well as a powerful living sword. The name Darkon should give you an idea of what you'll be dealing with in this domain. It's broken, dark, and in a nearly frozen state. And by frozen, I don't mean in ice. Its central castle is literally frozen in time and frozen in the process of being exploded. It's also trying to reassemble itself in this state, which is sad to witness in and of itself since it's never going to succeed at that. It's a domain in decline since its Dark Lord, the Lich Aslan, has gone and disappeared. The other domain I've mentioned a lot today is Falkovnia. Originally, the Dark Lord running things there was supposed to be an analog for Vlad the Impaler. Critics have noted that the domain was rather undefined beyond that. Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft adjusted this, though, and it is now one of those Groundhog Day loops. If you haven't seen that movie, check it out. Not the best movie ever made, but it'll give you an idea of what in the blue hell I'm talking about here. 
Haslin is what's called a majocracy, which makes sense since its ruler is the red wizard Haslick. He sees Haslin as his own personal magic laboratory. So take all of those horror movies where the bad guy is performing grotesque experiments on his victim, swap it with spells, potions, and the like, and you've got the basic idea of what's going on here. La Mordia is the author's nod to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. That's regardless of what edition of the setting you play, since it was originally ruled by a flesh golem created by Victor Mordenheim, but is now ruled by Victor Mordenheim, who's a mad scientist tortured by her inability to replicate the unbreakable heart device that keeps her reborn lover Elise alive. Like I said, a nod to Frankenstein. Whew. Okay, so I keep talking about these dark lords. Let's take a minute to uh, explore that a little bit. As I've mentioned, the term Dark Lord is used to refer to the ruler of a domain. We've also noted that those rulers have been both mystically imprisoned and cursed, so there's that as well. Dark Lords are individuals who have, at some point, committed what would be considered to be at least one horrific crime, and that crime brought them into the radar of the Dark Powers. They then created a personal kingdom around that individual, and we've noted that it's both their kingdom and their prison. There is a slight advantage here in that the Dark Lord gets some pretty serious powers, but that's balanced out, sort of, by the fact that they can never leave it. They can, though, seal the borders of their domain just by thinking it. The torture, by the way, for a Dark Lord is to be forever tormented by the object of their desire, which tends to be the object they committed their crime for. Think of it like the Hotel California. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Okay, no Eagles fans out there. That's, that's my bad. After having mentioned them when I mentioned the 5th edition updates to the Ravenloft setting, I realized we really need to take a closer look at the Vistani. They are a nomadic ethnic group, and as I noted earlier, are based on the Romani people. They made their debut in the original Ravenloft module as fortune tellers, and has since moved on to be a thread tying the Ravenloft and Mask of the Red Death campaign settings together. In Ravenloft, the Vistani tend to have a bit more of control over those mists I referred to earlier, which makes them the go-to folks if you need to get from one domain to another. If you played Ravenloft in any edition before 5th, the Vistani were superstitious, with the ability to curse characters with the evil eye. Since these are considered to be negative stereotypes, they were removed for 5th edition with their abilities grounded in magic available in that edition. With the setting covered, I had a couple of other things I wanted to hit on before we wrap the show. I noted in the history of the game that it's not only been a campaign setting, but also a part of numerous novels over the years. It's also been a part of four video games, 1994's Ravenloft Strahd's Possession, available for PC, 1995's Ravenloft Stone Prophet, also for PC, 1996's Iron and Blood, Warriors of Ravenloft for the PlayStation 1, and 2018's Neverwinter Expansion, which is available on Windows, Xbox One, and the PS4. There have also been two actual play streams for Ravenloft. The first, Tales from the Mist, ran from 2019 to 2020 on the official D&D Twitch and YouTube channels. The second is still running, The Black Dice Society. So if you're curious to see how Ravenloft plays, check one of those out. And finally, what would a deep dive of a campaign setting be without a review or two? In 1994, Rick Swan noted that, quote, it just doesn't seem special. It's a Forgotten Realms variant with a few more bats, end quote. As more supplements came out, though, his tune changed. Quote, 
The Ravenloft campaign has proven to be a credible adventure alternative for players interested in the dark side of the AD&D game. Though it lacks the flamboyance of Call of Cthulhu and the um, bite of Vampire, the Ravenloft setting remains the hobby's most enduring fusion of horror and fantasy. End quote. Dark Days Radio has declared Ravenloft as, quote, the greatest D&D campaign setting, end quote, noting specifically the unique gothic horror elements and the classic villains like Azalin Rex. So that's Ravenloft, or at least the half-hour version of what Ravenloft can be. If you're interested in finding out more about it for yourself, the earlier releases can be found in used game shops or as PDFs from the GM's Guild. The 5th edition materials should be available in your local game shop, so head over there if you're interested. And with that, we've come to the end of today's show. Next week, I'm finally ready to drop the first show with a list of the most popular game modules of all time. Our show next week will be a list compiled from various reviews and shorter lists put together by various writers and critics within the hobby over the years. And that reminds me, if you're interested in getting your choices into the episode we do about fan favorites, you've still got time. Hit me up on the socials or by email and let me know what modules you want to see make the list. In the meanwhile, please check out our other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. This week, we pick up with the mystery we started last week, and we'll peel another layer off of that onion to get us a bit closer to the first appearance of our big bad evil guys for the overall campaign. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash badgmprod. On Twitter at badgmp. YouTube and Tumblr, it's Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, it's badgmproductions.net. Next week, we find out what game modules the writers and critics feel are the best game modules of all time. How many made the cut? <laughs> You're going to have to check out the show next week to find out. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.